Hello there. Today, our conversation centers on one of the most significant public health burdens on the lives of LGBTQ people, human immunodeficiency virus, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or HIV AIDS for short. In 2021, 36,136 people received a new diagnosis of HIV. HIV resides in an estimated 1.2 million people in the United States and 38.4 million people globally. Many of these people may identify as part of the queer community. Years have passed since the initial outbreaks of the virus were discovered, but the fight against stigma, discrimination, and criminalization for contracting and passing the virus continues. The title of today's episode, Where Are We Now?, references how far society has come in terms of media talk, legislation passage, and public health measures impacting the survival for LGBTQ people living with HIV. Progress has been made, such as the creation of medications that lower viral loads to an undetectable and untransmissible amount. As well, the advent of PrEP medication to prevent acquiring HIV has been a game changer for many at-risk populations, including but not limited to men who have sex with men and trans women. Still, alarming health disparities related to the virus continue to exist, such as one in two Black men who have sex with men being at risk of contracting the virus, according to the CDC. As well, Where Are We Now? extends to our public health discussions of other sexually transmitted diseases, such as the recent Mpox outbreak. Are individuals who have been exposed to these viruses being treated with dignity and respect? What do our public institutions, media, government, and the like have to do with the continued subjugation to scapegoating that the queer community faces in relation to the spread of these viruses? I seek to answer these important questions within this episode. Lastly, before we begin, let's define sexual health. Sexual health speaks to one's ability to live a positive and affirming life related to sexuality and sexual relationships that does not include coercion, discrimination, and violence. The World Health Organization recognizes sexual health as fundamental to the overall health and well-being of individuals. By having HIV, one can still fulfill a sexually healthy life. Even so, being open about an HIV diagnosis can be scary. As we will soon discuss, Laws exist in certain states that criminalize transmission of the virus, such that if one does not know they have the virus, they may go to jail for passing it to someone else. We can't expect people to want to get tested for the virus if, most notably, we condemn these same people through legislation and ignite stigmatizing conversations that instead of promoting protection, such as access to PrEP, induce fear. Sexual health underlies a huge threat in the conversation, and we must start out on an equal understanding of what that means for people living with HIV. With that, I introduce our guest today, Dr. Stephen Thrasher. Thank you for listening in. I am Jalen Brown, and today we are here with Dr. Stephen Thrasher, uh, who is joining us. And to give a background, Dr. Stephen Thrasher is the inaugural Daniel H. Renberg Chair of Social Justice in reporting at Northwestern University and a journalist of many years with positions including but not limited to at The Guardian, The Village Voice, and on the NPR StoryCorps project. Dr. Thrasher is a scholar of the criminalization of HIV AIDS, an important topic related to the title of today's episode, 40 plus years following the first report of HIV AIDS in June 1981, Where Are We Now? His work has centered on marginalized populations and exposing the dangerous role that media has played in the perpetuation of LGBTQ plus health inequities. And thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Jalen. Yes, of course. A huge reason why I started this podcast was to embrace discussion on how people are doing excellent work in dismantling those inequities and discussing them in various ways. And I definitely wanted to delve in first to your passion and your background in getting into journalism, science, and uh, the background of who you are. So I have my first question for you, which is, what was your first affirming LGBTQ plus experience? Hmm. Um, I don't know what the very first one was, but certainly a very major one was that I was blessed to go to a a really wonderful and fun church um, in New York City when I started going there when I was an undergraduate. Uh, It was called Middle Collegiate Church. Uh, It had been a a very, very old church. Uh, It actually predates the Constitution of the United States, and um, the church owned land before there was a United States, and that land has uh, afforded their ability to, to keep having their congregation going over many centuries. But in the early 1980s, the church was going to um, close because there just weren't many people going to it anymore. And they sent a young minister to basically uh, kill it or give it a a slow death. And while he was there, he had no intention (laughs) of of abandoning this church. Um, And those were the years that AIDS started to uh, wreak havoc in New York City. And uh, this was in the East Village of Manhattan. And the church, Middle Collegiate, um, uh, Gordon, the minister, really decided to make that a a welcoming and affirming place for people who were uh, sick with AIDS and then eventually dying of AIDS. There were many people, of course, in the neighborhood who were. They started doing a weekly meal called Celebrate Life for people living with AIDS. Uh, And then also word got out that this was a congregation that would honor people regardless of their religious tradition. Uh, and so they ended up doing, uh, at one point, a funeral every week. Um, but they were doing funerals for people who were from other sects of Christianity, Catholics, uh, Judaism, Islam, from all different kinds of religious traditions, um, because they wanted to give people a place that was welcoming and affirming. Um, and then one man started a gospel choir. His name was Reese Johnson. He was a, a Black gay man. He started a, a gospel choir there that he conducted with great vigor and even conducted the night before he died from his um, from his deathbed. The choir met there and they had a final rehearsal with, with Therese. And so I, I came to New York City a little bit after that, but I started singing in that gospel choir. And when I first thought that I was gay, um, it was really in context with that congregation and also with um, some other actually church experience that I had. So uh, many people have an experience of being uh, kicked out and not affirmed from their religious tradition. And I was just very lucky that I wound up in a, in a, a religious community that was extremely affirming. And the first time I was in a pride parade was with, was with a contingent with our gospel choir um, at that church. And I also actually ended up meeting many very influential members of news media and academia who also went to that church, including a wonderful man named Kendall Thomas in my choir, who's um, an OG of critical race theory. He's one of the four people who co-authored the, co-edited the first book on critical race theory with Kim Crenshaw. Um, And he also became very instrumental in helping me become um, a Black gay academic as well. So I was very lucky that I had a church experience that not only affirmed my homosexuality and my queerness, but also um, helped me understand that I don't have to separate those different parts of my life, not the religious part, not the scholarly part, not the sexuality. 
Wow. What an awesome response. I just got a- maybe not what you're expecting from in a, in a medical that's story from you. That, that's the truth. <laughs> you you just told an amazing story right there. And I want to set in with the fact that like community was at the center of that answer. And I think that that is a really important insight to have for your experience. It sounds like. Yeah. It was, it was very formative. I mean, community has been a huge part of my, my whole life. My parents were very involved in church communities, but also my father was a high school history teacher. Um, and they both did lots of activism, particularly around uh, South African apartheid and um, trying to help end South African apartheid. And I think often about how my parents would go table at um, at street fairs and things like that. And, you know, people would scream at them that they were communists or terrorists. Uh, and they would do these things called round robin letters where you would like say what you're doing in your community and then you'd mail on to another community and they would add something and it would like get mailed between all these places. And a month you would sort of hear what everyone was doing and what was working and not working. But it seemed relatively lonely compared to social media now. Like there was very small numbers of people working in the Reagan 80s um, trying to grassroots things around um, South African apartheid. My, I grew up in Oxnard, California, a, a farming community, and my father was also involved uh, working with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers and helping um, help unionize farm workers and trying to increase their living experiences. And so, yeah, community has always been very much um, at the heart of, of everything I've done. And I think that that's an ethos that has helped me both as a journalist and as a scholar activist, um, no matter where I've been working. Well, thank you so much for telling us that amazing story. And I want to also ask, you are the inaugural chair of social justice reporting. How has the HIV AIDS epidemic of today been a social justice for the lives of LGBTQ people, in your opinion? So the job that I have uh, is really cool. It's it's both, it's called and it is a uh, chair about social justice and reporting, but it's also explicitly supposed to focus on LGBTQ people. The person who it was named for uh, was a gay alum from from the journalism school, um, and it's the first journalism professorship to focus on LGBTQ issues at any university. Um, but HIV and AIDS has been a really strong part of uh, my work for about a dozen years now. Um, and to some degree, it, it, I started reporting on it a bit accidentally. Um, I'm slightly, you know, I, I remember when AIDS started and, or, well, I, I shouldn't say I remember exactly when AIDS started, but I grew up in the 1980s. So I was certainly aware of cases like Ryan White, but this was before I was sexually active. And then by the time I was realizing I was gay and was sexually active, it was um, into the period of time where there, there were medications. So I'm just a little bit younger than people who saw all their peers just being slaughtered by uh, AIDS before there was knowledge of how to treat it, inability to treat it, and, and even for a period of time, not even an understanding of how it was being transmitted. Um, and so when I was in college and shortly after, AIDS was not a big story in the news, which is something that I, I now have done a lot of scholarly work about understanding. It should have still been in the news those years, but it wasn't. Uh, but the major stories, the major gay civil rights stories that were in the news when I was beginning my career were same-sex marriage, marriage equality, and also um, how to serve in the military. Those were the, the two biggest stories that I wrote about 
for about five, six, seven years when I was working at the Village Voice and writing for the New York Times and other publications. Um, and at a certain point in that process, I was very invested and interested in marriage because my parents were an interracial couple. It had been illegal for them to get married when they got married. Uh, so I was very invested for a while in marriage as a story because my parents had been an interracial couple uh, and it had been illegal for them to get married. They'd have to go to another state. But at a certain point, I realized that there were many things that were not covered by marriage and that were not covered by military service. And there were also things that were bad about military service, of course, or, or certainly bad about um, the militarization of the United States and how including more and more people in the ranks of soldiers might be good from an employment perspective here, but dropping a bomb on people in another country hurts everyone killed by the bomb. And of course, the, those people that are being killed by the bomb are going to include LGBTQ people. Um, and at a certain point, I was kind of, you know, understanding these were the, there were real limits to following just these examples, which were not going to be a, a full pathway to LGBT liberation or even equality. Um, and at a certain point, I started writing about AIDS. I, I was on a background interview in the Bronx with uh, uh, someone who ran an LGBT center, a small one for, for youth. And he talked about a program I'd known about. It wasn't particularly in the news at the time then either, um, that they would hold these drag balls, these spooky balls, like what you now see on Pose or Drag Race is a far more formal version of it. Pose is showing it more like it happened in New York. Um, and so in these balls, um, they would cost like $10 to get in, but these organizations would say, well, you can come in for free if you take an HIV test. And that is a way that they would connect with youth to get them tested for HIV and AIDS. But this person let's say to me, he was also worried because there were young people who were getting diagnosed with HIV and who were then selling their medications, uh, on the street once started getting free meds. And so I was very confused by that. I didn't understand why would they sell their meds. And so as I started reporting that, I realized uh, I started to learn about the scourge of homelessness amongst queer and trans youth. Right. So I started realizing that there were um, there was a real scourge of homelessness amongst uh, LGBTQ youth. And I started seeing that wherever you see poverty, particularly Black poverty and Black queer poverty or Black trans poverty, you're going to see high rates of HIV and AIDS. And so I started understanding um, and using the virus as a way to see what things were still plaguing the queer community. And there were portions of the queer community that no longer were really dealing with it because they had access to medication. So they had access to medication, they had access to housing. Um, but then it was when I started doing this reporting for a few, for a few years in various ways, and then I got put onto the big story of my career, um, which was when an editor named Mark Schufs asked me to report on the case of a young man named Michael Johnson who was accused of HIV transmission and was facing life in prison. And I've been thinking about that a lot now because uh, the week that we're speaking and recording, um, Uganda has just uh, instituted these new really uh, bad um, laws against people who are gay. Uh, it seems that I, I can't tell actually whether it's explicitly or implicitly, but I think having an HIV positive HIV diagnosis can also get you subjected to these same rules, these same um, sentences. And so it scares people away from, from getting tested. And it made me think about how, of course, what's happening in Uganda is terrible, but there are all these ways that the U.S., either through its allies or at home, has supported these kinds of laws. In Saudi Arabia, it's also you, you really effectively cannot 
become, you know, it's not safe to, to get tested for HIV and to become positive. And the kingdom beheaded five men um, about 16, 18 months just before when President Biden visited recently, uh, along with his black lesbian spokeswoman who um, talks up the gay rights record of the United States, but had nothing to say about the beheading of these men. But more importantly, here at home, uh, HIV is criminalized in about half of our states and people can go to prison for life. And the effect of, of what happens in Uganda, you know, whether an HIV diagnosis can get you sentenced to death or get, get you sentenced to prison in life, for life, and the United States, where you can also have an HIV diagnosis and end up in prison for life, are, are essentially the same. Um, and so when I started investigating the case of this young man, I was facing life in prison. It was really terrifying. I, I learned a lot about HIV criminalization. I didn't know already, or I didn't know anything at that point. Um, I'm embarrassed to say now that I thought, yeah, maybe it should be criminalized in some way, but not with life in prison. Now I know, of course, it shouldn't be criminalized at all. Um, but when I started looking into the story, I saw that it had all the hallmarks of systemic racism and homophobia. The person being accused was black. He couldn't really read. He was a college athlete who was extremely talented, but was being used by his university without getting a proper education. Um, and he was being a scapegoat. Most of the people that had sex with or accusing him were white. And he was absorbing all the anxiety about HIV and racism and sexuality in his community. And that happened in Missouri. I went to report on it in early 2014 in St. Louis region. And then I was sent back to report on, uh, on a separate story for another publication and months later when Michael Brown was killed, um, the young man who was shot in Ferguson in August of 2014. And when I asked the AIDS uh, organization I'd been working with on the previous story, what should I look for in this Ferguson? I'd never been to Ferguson. And they said, we were just in the Canfield Green apartment complex where this young man was killed because we've had some new cases of HIV in that complex. And Ferguson had this higher rate of HIV and AIDS. And so then I started really saying, oh, wherever you find black poverty, wherever you find police violence, you're going to find and where you find HIV or AIDS, you're going to find all these other things as well. So the virus, you know, as terrible as it is, can also give us a map for understanding what people need and what systems need to be dismantled to make them healthy, because no one can live healthy lives in poverty, being brutalized by police, being sent to prison, or with HIV or AIDS, that is an HIV that's untreated. No one should actually get AIDS. It's a slow moving virus and it's a scandal that, that we just don't get medication to people. Um, but anything that's happening to the, any, someone being affected by one of those things is highly likely they're going to be affected by one or the other. And undoing any of them means kind of looking at all of them and what's causing all of them and undoing the root causes of all of them. What I hope my work has been able to do as a journalist and scholar, book author or whatever, um, is to first just like admit what's happening. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And it's something that um, narratives in media try to hide, narratives of politics try to hide and all kinds, particularly in the United States, where we try to create an idea that the narrative, things are always getting better, things are always improving, the moral arc of the universe is bending towards justice. And it it doesn't bend on its own. Like people have to work to make it bend. Um, and of course, uh, there are ways that oppression changes forms. Um, and so I first just wanted to say like, this is what's happening. People are still getting HIV. 
people are still dying of AIDS. Uh, the better part of a million people in the world die of AIDS every year, even though there's been medication to stop that for almost 30 years. Um, and here in the United States, the virus is very much in what I call a viral underclass. Uh, HIV and AIDS are particularly amongst Black gay men of second men. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly concerned as a, a, a statistic from the CDC that came out in 2016 projected that one in every two Black queer men or Black men who have sex with men would become HIV positive in our lifetime. So part of me just like wants to say this is happening. Um, with my reporting on the law, I also wanted to show people like, this is what happens when you criminalize the disease. And and I think, of course, there's there's far, far, far more understanding and interest in AIDS history and in infectious disease since COVID over the past three years. Um, but even prior to that, I wanted to say this is still happening with AIDS. And even though there's an impetus in the American psyche and the American zeitgeist to punish people for being sick, that's built on ableism. And even sort of putting the ableism and the racism aside, it doesn't help public health. Whenever you stigmatize, whenever you make something illegal, you're actually making the problem worse. I found this very clearly in even just the one case that I was primarily reporting on. As this young man became a global news story for uh, allegedly transmitting a virus that 40 million people are living with, like you can't round up and arrest all 40 million people or everyone who you know transmitted the virus onward to them. Um, as he became like the face of HIV as a scandal and a monster, um, the logic that you have to understand about that is if you don't know you're HIV positive, you can't be prosecuted. It's because he was tested and because the state knew he had HIV that he was able to be prosecuted, arrested, and initially sentenced to, to almost life in prison until we got him out. Um if he never got tested, he couldn't be prosecuted. And that is the logic that, that like that stigma is behind so much about trying to get people tested for HIV. Um, that if the stigma is so bad and, and you will be punished, then people have a reason not to get tested. If you won't go to prison, you know, the, then you won't get tested. So where he lived in St. Louis, the people I, I worked with who did HIV prevention had an awful time getting people tested after they saw someone who looked like them being thrown in prison. And on the sort of moralistic end of things, one could say, like uh, people who think this is good, they could say, well, you know, I don't really care whether or not they get tested or not. But from a public health standpoint, the more virus that's out there, the more everyone's likely to get the virus. So we never want to punish people for feeling sick, getting sick, being sick, having a, you know, having gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV, AIDS, COVID, influenza, anything. We don't want to punish anyone. What what we want from a public health standpoint, everybody should want this, no matter sort of what their politics are, um, is for when somebody's sick, that they get the care and the help they need, that they're able to isolate, that they're able to figure out who else might have been infected who might have transmitted onward to them, not to punish them, but to like get everybody the care they need. And the more you can do that, the less virus there's going to be in the population. And we had this brief moment where this happened with COVID. People got sick with COVID. They could isolate even people who were poor at a certain point, you know, certain municipalities and states said, okay, if someone in your house is sick, we can put them in a hotel or we can put you in a hotel so they can stay at home. Like that's what we want to do because the sooner that people can isolate and get the support they need, 
the better they're going to be able to rest and the less virus there's going to be in the public body. Um, that did not happen with monkeypox. You know, after everything that had happened with COVID and how we knew what to do from COVID, when monkeypox came along last summer, which is relatively speaking, not to not to denigrate its importance, but um, affecting a pretty small percent of the population and with a virus that's actually not nearly as transmissible as, you know, COVID. Uh, it shouldn't have been that difficult to understand the scale of what needed to happen and for the society to effectively support everyone who was at risk. Um, but it didn't happen. People would get a COVID diagnosis and be told, okay, you have to isolate for four to six weeks. You're on your own. No financial support, no help. You know, for someone like me who writes or teaches, maybe if we got monkeypox, we could teach from home on Zoom, depending on the level of pain with it. But a lot of people who got it work physical jobs, bartenders, waiters, you know, service workers. Um, and so if you hand somebody a diagnosis like that and say, but you're on your own, you have to figure out how to live for four to six weeks with no money. Um, it's a completely unacceptable situation. And that heightens the stigma. And it makes it more likely that the virus is going to transmit onward if people can't, you know, can't isolate. So I hope um, I hope my work has had some role in helping people understand what stigma is, and trying to be non-judgmental about it, not just for ethical reasons, but for the actual practical reasons of keeping um, viral transmission down. Because if people are scared and can't get help, virus is going to keep bouncing around. If they can get the help and the support they need, the virus will drop. Certainly, any virus. Certainly. Yes. Yes. So many great things to mention there. And one thing that stuck for me was it sounds like one in two Black men who have sex with men or Black queer men deserve to not feel like they're going to be criminalized for getting tested. I'm reading on the viral underclass right now, and I, I, I get that impression from what you've written. So it is, it is clear to me in that. I wanted to touch a, a little bit on one of the tender moments in the book, to be completely transparent, the part of the book that moved me a lot was your discussion of your late loved one, Olivier. And it's a love story, a story of the difficulties of relationships and how people living with HIV are at high, high risk of suicide as well. And I wanted to ask, why was talking about your relationship with Olivier important for your overall larger discussion about the viral underclass? Well, it's the part, I'll be very honest. I mean, it was the part of the book I avoided writing the most. I only added it in the last week. Um, and I, whenever I write, I try to leave a certain amount of time before my deadline for some level of reflection. And so my book, which I wrote pretty quickly, but um, I had told myself, I'm going to finish it like a week before the deadline. And then I'm going to give myself possibility of rewriting one chapter of the book. And I'd sent, like, as I've been writing them, I'd been sending chapters um, individually to different experts to, re to review for me. And I'd sent the chapter that Olivier's in, which is what happens when we blame, mm -hmm. yeah, when we identify and blame one person for, quote unquote, bringing a sickness into an otherwise 
you know, quote unquote, healthy community. Uh, and so I'd sent this chapter to a friend of mine for technical review, really, um, to, to go over some of the history, and the, the medical te- technical terms I was using it. And as a good editor, even though I wasn't wanting this for me, <laughs> um, you know, as a good editor will see for me, like there's sometimes something I want to write about and I hide it deep into the story. And so I only had like a paragraph about Olivier in like the next to the last page of the book. Um and, or not, not the book of the chapter. And my friend like circled this. He's like, there's something here. I feel like you're avoiding it. I think this chapter is really about this person. Um, and so when I l- looked at the whole manuscript, when I had like a week left to, before I turned into my editor, I said like, he's right. This is the, this is the thing I've avoided most. And I sh- that's the chapter I should rewrite. Um, and so I like went, I like went back and over a very fevered, seven or eight days in the, the last um, stretch of the book, um, I went back through seven years of instant mess- of, of Facebook messages I had with Olivier. Um, and I really let myself feel my loss for him. And this, you know, in, in multiple levels, I think the kind of connection we had is a very queer connection. I've had other connections like this with people in my life. Um, that are different than a lot of heterosexual relationships. But we had this very intense connection, even though we only saw each other four times in seven years. Um, and he died by suicide. And it's something that wasn't really talked about much when he died. And more men, uh, well, it's probably other people too, but I'm, I'm more familiar with the data about men. You know, more gay men who have HIV die of lung cancer than they do of AIDS in, in many uh, countries in the United States, Canada, most of Europe, because stigma and depression and things drive people to alcohol and tobacco use. Um, and a large number still die by suicide. And the suicide part of it is, you know, suicide's complicated. You can't ever say it's just one thing, but certainly the weight of the stigma and the weight of the shame and my trying to understand, like, because I didn't, understand until after Olivier died that he hadn't seemed to tell a number of people we knew in common, including people I thought he had known much longer than me. Um, they didn't know that he was HIV positive, including some other HIV positive people who were also living with HIV. Um, and so I really had to wrestle with why did he tell me that? And I wrestled a little bit with the ethics. I didn't feel the law was very clearly on my side. Um, but I didn't, I, I had a couple of people, you know, question, should you out him as HIV positive after he's gone? Um, and I felt like not having learned and been through so many things around stigma, I thought acting like that's something to be ashamed about would add more stigma in a way I don't think he would have wanted. And I think he also told me as a writer, like he wanted me to know this. Um, and I wanted, I wanted the world to know what a wonderful person he was. And, and I wanted to share about like, the barrier this was in, in our own intimacy um, and how sad I feel, how sad I felt that I wasn't able to help with that more. Um, and just how sad it is that, that he's gone. He was such a beautiful person. And, and I wish that he did not have to live, had not had to live with the weight of what this stigma does to people. Yes, yes. And that was like the part that really struck me there too. Like you said, oh, maybe not talking about it would 
even add more stigma to a situation that's already stigmatized. I think that it's it was a powerful moment. And I, I, I really, I mean, I appreciate being able to just learn about that from like just that story. Appreciate your response. I know we're at 32 minutes. Going to MPOX a little bit, because you threw MPOX in there, and MPOX, one of the newest viruses seeming to affect LGBTQ plus populations predominantly, has resulted in 30,000 cases and 42 deaths since the CDC reported the outbreak beginning in May of 2022. After we thought transmission of the virus had subsided during the winter months, Chicago has seen an additional rise in cases reporting in the week of May, May 20th, 2023, that seven new cases have been identified. So what have you seen? Seven or 70? Seven new cases. What have you seen in journalism regarding MPOX that may have mirrored the damaging stigmatizing journalism done regarding HIV? I think you hinted to it a little bit earlier that some mistakes have been repeated. So do you think some mistakes are still being repeated in how we're discussing uh, this virus? Yeah, I mean, I've sort of written two pieces about it. One is, so I, I've written a new chapter for the paperback of the viral underclass, which is not going to come out till next year, but with book things, you, you have to have them done almost a year in advance. And so I just finished that. I also gave a keynote address um, at UMass in Boston in their uh, uh, LGBT studies um, department. Wondering why it was so hard, and I wrote about this for the Guardian too, like wondering why it was so hard to talk about as a sexually transmitted infection. Um, which it very clearly was for me. It, it moved through sex. It moved, and previously, for decades, this virus had behaved in one way. About five, six years ago, a doctor in Nigeria noticed, like, and it's a it's a pretty rare virus, um, you know, all things considered. Um, and then there was an outbreak in Nigeria. There hadn't been one in almost forty years, and and for the first time, it was all in men, and almost all self-identified men who had sex with men, and they weren't countryside where outbreaks had previously happened because it was mostly happening when certain rodents would interact with humans. Um, So there was like pretty clear circumstantial evidence from that outbreak six years ago that something had changed with this virus. It was moving. It was in, it was so lodged in one population. It seemed like it was moving differently. The, the doctor Aguena who, who, looked at that was was asking like is it moving through genital secretion um or is it somehow moving sexually so we now know like quite clearly it's it was moving sexually um and it seemed to almost entirely be moving through receptive uh, unprotected receptive anal intercourse seemed to be the major way that it was moving into people um and so i found it i actually thought most media reporting was pretty good on it last year um, there just wasn't nearly enough of it. There were only a few of us writing about it. And sometimes I thought it was overly cautious. I was, I thought the World Health Organization particularly did a good job of just like talking very clinically about how it was moving physically and non-stigmatizing um, the populations it was moving, how it was moving. Um, but I, I had fights with journalists and so, uh, with other journalists and sometimes with other activists about wanting to talk frankly about how it was moving. To me, there's nothing homophobic about saying it's moving through, you know, between men who have sex with men or through anal intercourse. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, the, the, the talk I gave, the lecture I wrote, I was trying to think about the ways that sexuality and sex acts have become very divorced from LGBTQ identity. And I'm saying LGBTQ 
explicitly here because I think that's a general phenomenon. Um, this was not a, a disease or infection I would describe as LGBTQ. I would say it's very explicitly happening amongst men who have sex with men because it has nothing to do with lesbians. Uh, in terms of trans health, it seemed to uh, really affect trans men more than trans women. But it became really, really hard to talk about it. And and to a certain degree, I think some media has tried to say, has tried to deal with homophobia by not talking about gay sex. But as I was saying with, with uh, the suicide earlier as well and, and the HIV status, sometimes not talking about something is its own form of stigma and homophobia. And and I thought, like, not talking about, frankly, what needed to happen with MPOX to protect um, queer men was really important. Also, just, like, talking about the actions. I had a brilliant colleague who brought this up at one point, because there was always about 1% of women who were being affected by this around the world. Um, and I had a colleague who finally asked, like, well, we need to ask those women if they're having anal sex. Totally makes sense. That would track with sort of everything else that we were seeing. And that like shows times where it's really important to focus on the actions and not sort of what we assume an identity does. So talking about men who have sex with men, talking about, you know, anal sex, there's nothing shameful about these things. Um, Sometimes it's like really drilling into those details where you understand what's happening. In terms of like what, thinking about what happened with MPOX compared to COVID and compared to AIDS, you know, it, in, in a sense, it should have been a cinch to kind of get it under control because we just came off this, we're still in the middle of, but had this massive, massive public understanding and potential infrastructure that could have dealt with it. We, we should have been able to like activate things that had happened in COVID, but they'd already been prematurely dismantled. They were already gone when, when they shouldn't have been. They should have been ongoing last summer. They should be ongoing now to, you know, to, to, to do uh, boosters and vaccines, uh, boosters certainly. Um, that had already been dismantled in, in lots of ways that, that was disheartening. Um, but we had this public understanding and, and gay men were like all ready to get that vaccine. The, the U.S. just didn't have it. We we'd not had, had not paid attention to keeping our smallpox vaccine um, uh, strategic reserve up to date. And so that created a lot of problems. Uh, but one of the other things I found really interesting talking to gay men who are a little bit older than me was their sense of how worrying it was remembering when AIDS, not HIV really, but AIDS, when AIDS started coming into their consciousness by a physical marker. You know, you would know someone was sick because they started having these lesions, these purple, what we now know are chaos um, uh, sarcoma marks. Um, and so was a similar thing with monkeypox that you were like seeing this marker for the first time um and also what i found super interesting was hearing from older gay men about how they felt like it it took kicking and screaming to get the world to pay attention to aids um it took a very long time uh covid interest happened relatively quickly because the capitalist ruling class thought that their workers would stop earning them profit. And so they wanted to, you know, they wanted to keep that from happening and they thought that COVID could come to them because uh, it's so more casual. Um, and then relatively speaking, there was not much interest in dealing with MPOX. Um, and so that was interesting hearing older gay men talk about that. And on a granular level, something I saw were very different ways of dealing with that in terms of equity and resources. So for example, 
their community groups that I reported on who gave out, you know, gave out, they, they hosted in their space um, the distribution of COVID vaccines. Um, and, the, you know, either with county governments or state governments, they, they the advertising, they host the space, they have people come in. Um, and for doing so, even though they were giving a lot of free labor, they were still getting paid a little something from, you know, their local health department for not engaging in their other business or, you know, for dealing with any legal liability that could come up from someone, you know, being hurt on their premises or something like that. Uh, and the same organizations that did it for COVID vaccines and did it for monkeypox vaccines did not get the reimbursement for the monkeypox vaccine. That was like considered something you should just do out of the goodness of your heart. So the organizations still did it, but it's also like, I think it's unfair to say to a gay bar or, you know, a gay sauna, okay, we're going to forego the two, three, four, five thousand dollars we would earn tonight to instead have a full clinic, you know, give up our space to get people vaccinated. And if they're willing to pay them back for that or a portion of that for COVID, but not for MPOX, then it shows that they care about COVID a lot more than they did for MPOX. Um, and so there were, there were various stories around, like that I, I heard from around the country where the same folks who were doing the work on the ground to try to get people vaccinated for both viruses certainly were much more supported by their local governments and the federal government for the former than for the latter. Wow. That's that investigational piece that I just love that you've done. It's like you're highlighting that part is really is is really important. It's deep in like how reimbursement actually happens and how things that maybe I'm not thinking about is like I've gotten vaccinated against MPOX, but like I haven't really thought too like significantly about the infrastructure for like preparation against it and to have that like understanding is also important. The mistreatment. Well, yeah, for instance, you know, for instance, in our in the institution we're both affiliated with Northwestern, I learned I, so I was very upset with Northwestern um, <laughs> in this. In, in much of this process. I mean, they asked me to talk to the media and I did throughout the summer all last summer and, and shared my research. Um, but then the university put out a really bad and unscientific email to the whole community uh, shortly before classes started last last year. Uh, I think it was in August. And in it, they said MPOX is not a sexually transmitted infection and it only moves through close contact. Uh, and so one, it's like incorrect. Um, but two, it creates other kinds of homophobia, right? Like I think they thought they were trying not to be homophobic, but it's like, if you say it just happens through close contact, then like people are going to be needlessly freaking out about who their roommate is or who they're eating near or things like that. Um, and then I, and then they, they weren't like being proactive. So we did our own teaching about it. We actually eventually did do two monkey pox and pox, um, vaccine, uh, distribution on campus, um, but it, it was really led by faculty who were, who were revolting against the university's line. But something I found really interesting was talking to a, a former student who had then become an employee of the university. And I don't know if you remember this or if you were trying to get the MPOX vaccine, like many of us were, you know, it was, it was so hard to get. I got the first one by accident uh, or because I just heard a rumor that they're giving them out at Steamworks. And I thought, it's not actually going to be true, but I'm going to go write a story about the people who show up and then they did actually have them. Um, but then, you know, there, there were these endless stories from around the country, people going, waiting three, four, eight, ten hours at a place, not getting it, you know, then getting MPOX after they tried to get the vaccine and they couldn't get the vaccine. And I talked to this former student who now worked for the university, and it was so fascinating hearing his story of how to get the COVID vaccine. You know, he was allowed to take a day off 
to get every shot and every booster. The university would pay for you, you know, a half day, full day, whatever you need. If you need another day because you were, you know, had bad reactions, you would still get paid. And a supervisor wouldn't let him do it for the monkeypox vaccine. Wow. Um, and he just did it anyway. And he was like getting in fights and getting in trouble because they're like, what happened? You said you're going to go get this vaccine and you were gone for four hours. And he was like, I went and I waited for four hours and then they didn't give it to me. So I had to go try again. And it's like things at that level that, that, that show a kind of structural um, uh, discrimination, right? Like you're being treated very differently for one disease versus the other because one and there are all kinds of you know i don't i don't mean to make it sound like covid is is so respected in the society but you know but relatively speaking like covid is considered a quote-unquote innocent um you know virus to get versus you know mpox is considered like a promiscuous virus to get um and you have the same institution the same person trying to do the same thing get vaccinated against an infectious disease through which the vaccination will protect everybody, <laughs> no, not just the individual, um, and yet, like, basically these barriers put against them. Um, yes, yes, yeah, you know, that is really, really insightful, and just shows you that discrimination is seeps in so many areas, and we have to be, we have to be mindful of that, and we have to be thinking about ways to support people in that. Thank you so much for answering my questions. And thank you so much for coming to the Equity Podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Incredible. I am so glad you got a chance to hear this conversation on the importance of language, compassion, and activism towards improving the lives of people with HIV. As well, we can't discuss HIV without discussing how our treatment of people with the virus has created divisions within our society, like the viral underclass. LGBTQ plus people who live with HIV are subjected to a higher likelihood of homelessness, job discrimination, financial insecurity, depression, and even up to suicide. Dr. Darsha's excellent work as a transdisciplinary scholar continues to educate us on why it's important that we don't continue to blame people living with viruses as the causative agents and perpetrators of disease. Instead, we should look to our vital societal institutions who play an important role during intervention of public health burdens and to each other as a community to show compassion and care. For MPOX, that continues to impact the LGBTQ community, we must not shy away from the discussion that this virus is sexually transmitted and realize that this virus deserves as much attention, response, and fair treatment options compared to a larger public health burden, such as the SARS-CoV-2 virus. As diseases that are infectious and non-infectious continue to impact our society, the queer community should receive equitable protection under public health measures, the law, and support from the community to avoid repeating past mistakes. Thank you for listening in. If you would like to learn more about the efforts to create universal access to PrEP for everyone, visit PrepForAll.org or follow at PrepForAllNow on Twitter. Additionally, if you'd like to learn more about being an advocate for HIV criminalization reform, visit seroproject.com. That is S-E-R-O project.com to track bills related to HIV criminalization and or watch videos explaining how to advocate for ending criminal laws and procedures. And if you are a person living with HIV or know a loved one living with HIV who is struggling with their mental health, visit cdc.gov slash HIV slash basics slash living with HIV slash resources to know what resources exist for you and get connected to help. 
Lastly, you can read Dr. Drosher's book, The Viral Underclass, in libraries or buy from stores now. Let's continue to push the conversation more on Instagram at Equity Podcast or on Twitter at Equity Pod. I'm looking forward to our further conversations. Take care until then. <laughs>